0: Welcome to the Alongside a Podcast and this week I am again really really pleased to be able to introduce you to Peter Kerr who is actually one of um, the world's experts on the execution of OKRs amongst other things. Um, his background is fascinating from advertising, uh, providing IT sports services, uh, he understands IT in the biggest sense of the word. Uh, In a very practical, grounded uh, way, he was uh, um, confident enough to being vulnerable, to be able to ask the organisation what bugs you about IT and listen to the answer and then come up with the solutions. Um, And I think this is a really interesting area. Um, He understands the, the need to ask the question why um and and then then think about where are we now where do we seek to be so it's our coaching frame um he is without doubt a great alongsider but he's also uh relishes having others alongside him um he's not vulnerable there um he's he's um, humble enough to be able to do it as a result he is someone who is very naturally included into the c-suite uh to the very senior levels of organizations because uh he isn't seen as a threat what he is is um a force to be reckoned uh, with in terms of getting the right things done i commend this to you i could go on um there's no point because you might as well listen for yourself i know you'll find it fascinating um his theme of simplification uh, i think is, is is really helpful um uh, employment readiness in the education system for anyone who's interested in that sort of area um he's he's he has a has a lot to say about that um and being able to ask why are you doing that um in a way that's a disarming um and and can invoke an honest answer so um performance and learning uh in the workplace uh is is a very interesting topic I commend this to you. Uh, and look forward to um, seeing you on the podcast soon. Take care. Bye. Hi there. Welcome to the Alongside a Podcast, where we look at um, the fundamentals around change, making decisions, and how useful would it be to have someone alongside as we think about these changes and the decisions. And I'm really, really pleased today uh, to have uh, a colleague and friend, Peter Kerr, who is, uh, he might not say, but he is actually, without doubt, one of the world's uh, most experienced OKR coaches, um, which is a a lot more than just being an OKR practitioner. uh, And you'll find that out. So without any more ado, um, Peter, welcome to Alongsider. And... um, I just wonder if you might uh, indulge us a moment. If someone else was going to introduce Peter Kerr, what might they say?
1: Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, depends where we are. Are we in a rugby club or are we um, <laughs> at the parents
0: evening? Um, Friend, friendly territory. Friendly
1: territory. I, th- I think they'd like, I mean, I'd like to think of myself as um, open, honest. Um, probably some of the cliches that people might throw at somebody being from the North, but, you know, speaks their mind. I think from my perspective, what I like to hear is that um, I've delivered value. I've been clear about what I'm about. I think that's how, if you ask my kids, I think I quickly realized that it was about conversation. It wasn't about being authoritarian or dictatorial. And I think that's something that I've carried through in my business life. A lot of the time I've been alone. So I've been somebody that's been really appreciative of the council when I could get hold of it because, you know, it's a lonely place running your own companies often. So I think that has coloured my judgment in terms of where I've chosen to go. You know, that sense of independence uh, that my dad would say that I'm a bit of an iconoclast. Um, I guess at my worst, I could be a little bit tilting at windmills um, in the past. I learned a lot, I think, from that. But I think always curious. I think um, I'm I'm probably um, infuriatingly curious, as well, actually as one one of my previous bosses called me, because I I always wanted to know how things worked and how could it make things a little bit better. So I think all of that combined has probably led me to the right job in the end, which is coaching around OKRs, which is is actually much more about learning than it is about execution.
0: Mm, mm. So th- that thank you. That's really rich. Um, um, as a, as a response, um, what what came up for me? Um, we we're weaving a little thread of enneagram through these conversations, just where it's appropriate. And as it happens, because we have worked together, I know you've uh, done your enneagram. Um, so listeners might not be surprised to hear that uh, Peter is a is um, uh, is a, is a helper. So he's somebody who uh, wants to be helpful. Um, considerate helper is what it's called within the the speak. Um, but I was intrigued because you also said uh, that it works; that the thing works. Um, you know, we're not just talking about it; we're actually, you know, uh, make, making a difference, adding value. Could you? How does that work? Uh, being someone who relates and to people um, and get gets things done. I think it, I think
1: it's about patience. A lot of it's been about. The cliche, I guess, from a coaching perspective is you suddenly realise it's the questions you ask rather than the answers you give as you migrate. I think what we are all trying to do, particularly in the formative years of our career, is we're all trying to perform. You know, there's a series of performances and we get promoted based on a performance and then we might get to a board and we perform at that level. And sometimes we just take our foot off the gas in terms of learning um, because we assume that the idea that we might make a mistake could be weak. Um, So what I like to think of is if I can get to know people a little bit better, then for them to start that little journey of self-awareness where those little light bulbs are going on without being, you know, hitting them with a stick, that's where I think I can add the value. Because if the conversations change, it's it's like in this environment, we're now working virtually. We all kind of take it so far for granted, but it's only a short time that Mm. this has become the norm. Yeah, we've kind of accepted it, but we've not really learned how to do it. But I still would maintain that from a coaching perspective, my best encounters are first in person because it's a three-dimensional encounter and you learn so much more about people. And then you learn the right to actually work with them virtually. So I think where I see the value is A, getting to know people, get to know what they take. Don't treat every assignment as if it's just a wash and repeat because I think that's really dangerous ground to go on and try and find the things that are going to motivate those people where you think it can help. So it's, And it can sound a little bit like being manipulative, but ultimately it's a bit like with your kids. You, know, you want your kids to think it's their idea. Um, mm. And also sometimes you're in a fantastic position as an external because you're often more listened to than the internal. You could have an internal advocate that would be going on about everybody needing a growth mindset and everybody nods and agrees and then does absolutely nothing about it and just stays very fixed. Or you come in for somebody like me and say, well, what would need to be true for this to be different? Or how could you? And it's just a different set of questions, and stimulates a different things. So to me, don't treat everybody the same, but make sure you keep checking in and make sure they're getting something out of it.
0: So I'm intrigued. Uh, if... Um... I mean, spoken line are uh, true too. I would say what you just said there uh, in in many ways. But but I'm this manipulation. Sure. Well, this manipulation. I just was interested in your early career. How would uh, those people working with you or reporting to you, um, or you report to them? How would they have experienced uh, Peter Kerr then, and and as opposed to how um, someone might experience Peter Kerr now.
1: Oh, it's a really good question. I mean, it's hard to put, I mean, I, would you say I could look back and say handle things a lot differently? Yeah, I could. Um, when I first got a significant job where I had sort of a director title, I think I was very much in performance mode. I wanted mm. to show people how clever I was and how busy I was. You know, I wanted to, if somebody could go through a task in a day, I wanted to do it in an hour, you know, and there was this, this idea of almost one-upmanship and, mm. um, Till I actually started to mature a bit and then realized, well, what is the value I'm adding? And I'll give you a, a simple example. I worked in IT, all right? So I kind of had the organization I was in, anything that had a plug hanging off it really was my responsibility. And I used to, and I was kind of in a, uh, not a, a board level, pseudo board level where I reported through the financial CFO at the time. And I used to write this report that nobody read but I could spend a lot of time doing it. Um, And it was a great tomb of a thing and it had lots of statistics in it, it had server performances, it had all sorts of things and nobody read it whatsoever. Um, And at that point I realized that I wasn't really that welcome in the boardroom. They were all thinking about going out for a meal that night or going to the pub. Um, So I asked the CFO if I could just switch it around a bit and do something differently. And that's where I started to see a different perspective in the agency. It wasn't the silo of the IT department it was about how does the IT facilitate the rest of the organization? And that came about by me wandering around, asking all the chiefs of, what bugs you the most about IT? Mm. And they would tell me. And some of it was super easy to fix, and some of it was a little bit more structural and hard. And then once with I had that evidence, I used to just report back to them on what I fixed. And suddenly I became more of a colleague collaborator than, oh, bloody hell, it's that bloke from IT again. Um and I think that changed a lot about how I got curious around, well, where do all of these pieces fit? And then, it, it's again, it's another, I've talked about a growth mindset. The other thing that everybody talks about now, collaborations, cross-functional working. They all say it. I haven't found a boardroom yet that does it. They all talk about it should be something that's done outside of the boardroom, but then, and then you'll ask them, ask any board member, do you think you guys spend enough time together? Oh, no, we don't. And then they do nothing about it.
0: Mm. Mm. so what's what's a, what's that about would you say if they were what would need to be true to use one of your expressions for them to be spending more time thinking? I mean, we've talked about working in the business and on the business the board is primarily they're about working on uh, what would need to be true for them to be able to collaborate more
1: I think one they need to um, I think the main one is be prepared to admit you get things wrong and be prepared that you don't know stuff. Mm. I think there's a story about the guy Hastings from um, around Netflix, and he used to make his board directors shadow each other for a day. So you would go and find out. So let's, I mean, you'll have been in situations, we've all been in situations where one, there's a tension between a couple of board members and it's palpable, you know, you can you can detect it. Again, part of the, when you're in the room together, those things that you can pick up, that nuances of language. But imagine if you had to say to them, well, actually I can see that there's some... And a, you've got to admit that there's a problem and don't be passive aggressive, but then, why don't you shadow them so you can just stand in somebody else's shoes for a wee bit? Because I, I think that's a, a problem at board, and particularly when you hire these stellar performers, You know, somebody that's had an amazing track record and they come in and they're almost got—they're too big to question. But actually what they're doing, what they did before, might not be relevant to what you need now. They might need to know a little bit more. They might actually just be a little bit frightened of their own CV and not be willing to ask. Mm. You know, I think it's that ability to say, I'm on this continuous journey of improvement. I've got to make sure, rather than trot out everything that goes on. So I think that the silos are largely performance-based high-performing people i don't think generally are as open to learning as perhaps they could be
0: yeah and, and competing and the, com- the competitions on the inside rather than actually yeah. on the outside. um just picking up what you said about um you know working through the cfo which is interesting with with it and effectively you are providing the it services for the business um I mean, I've noticed with the clients that I work with, because uh, I work with quite a lot who are sort of technical experts, uh, that when it comes to, and I'm just going to call it IT, I know it's a bit of an ignorant way of describing it, but let's just call them that embraces AI and all these other things, that um, because the board doesn't really understand it, um, unless it's particularly a, an area of their expertise, um, that there is this sort of distance between... Um, the IT because you're going to have to decide how much to invest and in the in the people and everything else and so these are that's where we become vulnerable. I just was interested that that shift you did towards solution, um, you know, you asked what needs to be fixed, so that was a perception. Uh, with the the way um, you know, software as a service has grown sort of sort of exponentially. Uh, for organisations, so they've had to become more people-orientated, user-orientated, because if they want the pe- the thing to be, um, uh, uh, you know, to, to be renewed, this is retention of business, the people need, it, it's about what do you want the people to say about it. So that, I just, I wonder how that aligns with what you're saying there about, uh, in other words, the inside and the outside needs to be able to know what, outco- what value it, it's supposedly adding.
1: They're really interesting because I mean if you do broaden that out to I suppose the era that we've operated in this digital transformation I mean what I'm encouraging any project if I see digital transformation on a project so just drop dig- digital it's transformation ultimately I mean, the, the technology is there and it's there it stays so thinking about how you position it it's, it's really interesting because when I yeah before I t- um, became and like an IT director. I actually, I actually was a salesman and sold IT equipment. And everything around was this shift from Opex to capex or capex to OpEx really. don't you know, take take capital expenditure out, make it operational. so it used to sell all your kit on lease and all of this stuff. and it was now what I'm seeing a lot across of many organizations is like a bonfire of subscription services. For the very reason that you've pointed out, and I think the model, if you look at how people sell it, they sell it by the seat, right? So immediately you are in a place where the consultant wants, to, uh, the the, uh, the sales guy wants to hear, oh, so how many people work for you? And they go, oh, 2,500. Oh, so you should start off with at least a 1,000 seats, you know? What he didn't say was maybe that 2,000 of those people work on the factory floor and have no access to a computer. Mm. Um, and I think the so this. There's always an inherent tension, I think, between that. I think that whole world will move to usage. You will buy, mm-hmm. and then you've got no place to hide, you know, because if people aren't using your product, and I think at the moment, and again, back to silos, certain people have discretionary power. And you so you go into an organization and you'll find five, six different types of software, sometimes quite similar, doing similar jobs. But one person's come from another organization, they bring this new tech in it gets using it. I think that overall vision back to what you're talking about at a C-suite level, people not entirely being comfortable with technology, they sometimes get bamboozled by actually what's the job to be done. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we've bought this thing. What was it then? was it very much leads you to the the OKR conversation about being oh. outcome focused. Yeah,
0: because that's that's where that's what I was thinking. Because uh, it. Um... It seems to me that the the OKR. I mean, I've done some work with you um, in the, in this area, which has always been uh, fascinating uh, and exhilarating, actually. But it strikes me that the the journey is um, often goes to the doing bit before it's actually thought about why and and what does good look like. And actually, what's what what I've noticed that people in the C suite actually find your presence disarming. And by that, I mean, you're not a threat uh, and 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 very engaging. Um, and the overarching sort of umbrella thing is, is this uh, OKRs? If anybody's not sure of it or hasn't heard of this, is this objectives and key results? I mean, I wonder whether you perhaps just could very quickly just uh, give us a, a thumbnail of what OKRs are.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, they, they, they evolved out of management by objectives, which lots of people have heard of from Drucker. Um, Guy called Andy Grove put them into Intel in the seventies, largely because he he was frustrated by a set and forget cycle. You know, people would set objectives at the beginning of the year, they'd review them at the end, and they were directly related to their bonuses. And then they used to basically fudge the numbers to make sure they got their bonuses. And mm. but he brought in a much shorter cadence to this, um, where objectives ran for a year, but then were driven through quarterly objectives that were reviewed on a regular basis. He had an acolyte called John Doerr who wrote a book called Measure What Matters. And famously in that, he told everybody how he'd introduced OKRs to Google. And Google, in essence, became in the tech world, the poster child of OKRs, which led them to widespread adoption in Silicon Valley. And then more recently is back to that digital transformation as companies realize what got them here is not going to get them there. And they've got to drive some change into the organization. OKRs became a vehicle around transformation in large organizations and enterprises, and that's kind of where I sit. And and really, it's like anything. It you can learn the theory of it, but ultimately, it's it's a it's a mindset shift. First, we're gonna we're gonna think and concentrate on outcomes, not outputs. You know, like to do lists. And then f- what we're gonna do is iterate and learn. Um, and that's getting back to some of the habits that sit in the c 3 I I have absolutely no doubt OKRs don't fail because of software; they don't fail be, they fail because of the culture, you know. So going full circle back to Drucker, you know, as he said, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, well, culture eats OKRs for breakfast too. Mm,
0: mm, 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 mm. So with that in mind, and we know that most business transformation programs don't achieve their objectives. We know that most CEOs that get appointed don't actually achieve what the um, the recruiter uh, was looking for. Uh, and I'd suggest it's the same sort of thing. So what is it that, because uh, where an OKR uh, application has, let's say, gone adrift, and we talk to, um, and I'm, I know you do, as people who've already put them in and they found they don't work, but there's something about them they want to retain and they just want to improve them so they haven't chucked them out. What is it that you bring um, as a uh, as a mindset, uh, as much as anything else, that enables uh, this whole, which is a relatively simple application, to actually work in the context?
1: I think it's simplification. I think that the hardest thing to do is simplify something, because mm. if you simplify language, it's very difficult to hide. And then it's really around, once we've identified those simple things that need to change, what are we going to do about it? And it's that, you know, I often use, and you've probably seen it in the coaching that you've participated with me, I often make the analogy of a magnifying glass. You know, so yes, we're going to bring focus, but also if you put a magnifying glass in the sun, it also burns. And there's a certain intensity that's uncomfortable there. So let's, for example, say that you make a product and you're a manufacturing company that, that constantly ships late. You're okay, oh, it's fairly simple. Let's keep our promises and not ship late. Mm. One objective. Mm. Because the permit well, how that permeates through the organization. So let's say you're the organization that ships late, but you want to be recognized as a very high-value brand. If you're continuing to ship in late, you can do as much work as you like on thought leadership and putting out marketing pieces out there. You know, you can change your font a dozen times and and get a design house, but it won't change people's perception of you out in the market that you're constantly giving your product late. So fix the stuff that's important and don't hide from it.
0: So I'm uh, this podcast is called Alongsider, finding your place and taking your place. Um, you've given us a brilliant overview of uh, context for for O-K-O-S. What What's been your journey for finding your place um and taking your place to where you are now
1: oh, um it's been varied really i think the um i learned a huge amount from my wife my wife runs a uh, ranch who just retired this year a, a a huge intensive care unit at a teaching hospital and she taught me so many things about prioritization and what to do and what not to do and how to organize yourself better so there's there was a lot of things in my anarchic self-employed world that I hadn't figured out that I took directly from her, um particularly around things like recruiting. You know, she goes, "You need to have a process" because I was just creating piles of people I quite like the sound of, you know. And she knows she says, "You need to go in with a criteria," and uh, I think, and that's often what the case of so learning what not to do is really what she sort of helped me to see.
0: Yeah,
1: I'll then go to a guy who I'll definitely name check a guy called Tim Price who told me more about selling by selling to me than I've ever been taught by anybody else. Um, Because he just turned it into a conversation that everything he talked about had meaning to me. Um, And I learned a lot from him. And then fortunately, I became a coach and a consultant to him later on because he quite liked a few of the things that I did. So he was definitely hugely instrumental in what I did. And he was somebody definitely that could simplify more latterly, probably my main influence has been somebody that's been on your podcast, which is Mark Richard. Mm. Um, an incredibly knowledgeable guy with huge amount of wisdom and talent that taught me... Also, and, doesn't
0: know it, and doesn't know it as well.
1: Well, he may may not know it. He certainly wouldn't say that he had it. Um, I mean,
0: that's what I mean. He, had, he hides his light under a bushel. You know.
1: Oh, massively. And mm. he taught me a huge amount about... Well, we were, I'll tell you, well, we were sitting in a first-class lounge somewhere in an airport, having me pretty much never been there and him a bit more familiar with those surroundings. And, and I was talking about work, and he's going, you know, sometimes you've got to slow down and enjoy the journey. It isn't just about taking yourself to the destination. Mm-hmm. So take some time and think about what you've achieved and where you've got to, and take confidence in that and move forward. So enjoy the journey as well. And I think that's what, when Mark and I went into business together, that's what I felt he always brought to me was that level of let's not rush to the next mountaintop without actually enjoying the view when we get to where we're going, reflect on what we're learning. Because, you know, he's a natural teacher um, mm. that he probably wouldn't say, but he and he's such wise counsel. So, yeah, I would say my latter part of my last part of my career, really, and how it's helped me become better at what I do, he's he's been hugely important to me.
0: So if we take uh this, this idea of alongsider, um you just described some of his qualities uh um coming alongside you. I mean Tim, who you just mentioned, who you, you swapped places and he came along, you came alongside him. How would he describe you as an alongsider, do you think? I think
1: a uh, um critical friend. Um I think that's probably I'm not frightened to say things that perhaps other people wouldn't say. And I don't mean that by being rude, although some people probably maybe say I have been in the past, but I do think that that clarity of thinking and honesty, um, that constantly probing, you know, the five whys or whatever, why are you doing that? You know, it sort of links all the way back to that curiosity piece that I said at the beginning is, you know, if you're not curious about being better at your job, why are you doing it? You know, I mean, if you do the same thing every day, how dull is that? You know, I mean, you've got to be looking to get better at it. So um, I think the people I've come alongside are always provoking, provoked me to get better. Mm. And that's what I try to do. I try to book them to keep going and try and be a bit better. And well, why couldn't you do that? You know, the, that's why, you know, that question I said, you know, what would need to be true mm. is, a different way of saying what's getting in your way,
0: yeah, yes, but it's focused on the destination, which is the uh, the outcome which is which is which is key and and I because that I think that's really that's really good um have you found your place?
1: Oh I don't know. um personally, I think I have i'm um I'm pretty content i don't, I sleep well um but professionally no, I don't think I have I still I still think I think I've got things. I've got itches to scratch. Um I want to do a lot more teaching. Mm. i like to teach and 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 mentor and coach a bit more from uh, a, a younger generation. Cuz uh, you do I'm, this you did
0: this work at the University of East Anglia if we're allowed to mention that. But um could I you do, tell yeah. us a little it's coming could, up
1: again yeah.
0: Yeah, could you tell us a little bit about that cuz that's you coming alongside them isn't it?
1: It is, yeah, and it's interesting that so the, um, the the person who I worked with is a professor Kenny Coventry, uh, who I, is, is a friend now. Um, but he he wanted to bring he wanted to bring the big bad wolf into academia. That's where this all sort of came from, because <laughs> what what he was saying was that there's a huge amount of very few psychologists who study psychology go on to be psychologists they mostly go off and do lots of other things mm. anything from either you know working in business or you know whatever it is it's not very many of them actually go and pursue in academia a career in psychology mm. um, so as a result for employment readiness you want to put a program into place which starts to jolt them into thinking about how they can apply the skills that they were learning within their psychology degree so they would be valuable to an external party like a consultancy business or any um, advertising marketing any of these research um so that's what we did and so we came up with a format and we've experimented with it and it was largely around turning them into little small companies into in a a workshop environment setting them a couple of uh, case studies for them to work they select one and then they sort of dragon's den pitch at the end about how they can win the work and then we have a winner and a you know and then we have runners up and and it got really um popular i mean we got sponsored by uh, i think Grant Thornton sponsored it you know so they've got a quite sizable prize i think the first one i did i had 35 students the last ones i've done i've had nearly 240 so we had to split it into two different days so we have a residential weekend that we do and and a site just outside of norwich and we have another one that um and so it's really grown and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing it again this year. And it, I get a huge buzz from it because the ideas are so fresh and raw from, and I always learn something from them always, you know? And, and I think the, I always say to the kids right at the beginning, I said, you are probably dreading today because you think it's going to be the longest day of your life, right? I'm guaranteeing it's going to fly by. And I always ask them afterwards in the bar, they go, we can't believe how quickly it went because mm-hmm. You time pressure them right at the end because you go say your slot to pitch is 345, and they're all running around. And we keep tech out of the building. We don't allow them to use PowerPoint. They've got to do it on flip charts and old school, uh, which is – yeah, but I love it. And I I do think that there is a disconnect in academia with employment readiness, and I think they're quite high-handed about the lack of engagement with it. I mean, everybody – said that, that blame game is so old, isn't it? Academia blame business, business blame academia. Well, I get the hell together and fix it
0: then. Mm. And and I, I I wonder whether what you're uh, sort of picking up there is exactly what's happening in the boardroom. You know, the the expertise and the uh, the me and the I, if you like, of working in silos, uh, is is actually carried. It's a caricature of of what we have, and actually what we we value. I think the camp the pandemic showed us. What we really uh, that we live our lives locally, and we do, and certainly then you did because you couldn't go anywhere else. Um, and it matters. And the 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 what we're really looking is to build community. And I've noticed that um, there are these communities emerging everywhere, actually, in all sorts of different uh, places, and they're very much across. I just wondered from the point of view of OKRs, which is new or relatively new um what what are you seeing in terms that's encouraging around a community of practice um that would be collaborative
1: um a few things i mean i got i was lucky enough to get invited to ben Lamort's, uh team okrs.com um i learned a huge amount from them i think on the whole though um the coaching aspect has been a little bit sidetracked by the technology. Uh, mm. The technology players are really, they dominated. I mean, when I first set up our little consultancy business, I could get top two rankings in Google for nearly a year and a half, two years. Um, as soon as the tech companies came in, obviously their budgets could absolutely blow mine out of the water. And however skilled I was at SEO, and I knew a little bit about it. And I, and I, if I didn't, I, I asked people who did. Now. Mm. Uh, I, I couldn't keep up. I mean, I I was barely on the first page, and then into the second page. So, I think the I think OKRs are going to have to go through a switch about what do they want to be when they grow up. Otherwise, you end up just people. I was actually I was writing a, a blog piece about this. I haven't pushed it out there, but I, there's a saying in Agile, you know, which is "Aino," which is Agile in name only. So everybody goes through the ceremonies, but actually, it isn't changing a dang thing in their organization. I have stand-ups, I've got Scrum Masters, I've got Sprints and Epics and all the other good things. But actually, it's as waterfall as they ever were. They're just giving things a different label. Mm-hmm. I think there's a sense of that with OKRs too. So it could be a crino if you like OKRs in name only. Because you know if you aren't tracking real metrics and you're just using it as a proxy for project management and milestoning things, then... You can tick a box and say we use OKRs, but actually you're not unlocking any value for it. So I think it's a it's a really interesting time, um, but it's about that cultural element at the board. Are you willing to go to somewhere uncomfortable, in which case OKRs are a great place to help that focus, alignment and stretch and tracking? Or do you want to give the illusion of it, in which case you can just relabel what you did before and you'll get pretty much the same results? but. You can tick the box and say, "Oh, we do OKRs." Okay so I know that that would probably annoy a few people, but that's been my experience of what sixty or seventy projects now.
0: No, that that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, the thing I've been noticing uh, in a whole variety of conversations, not just on the on this podcast, but also elsewhere, is that uh, people are fairly fed up with the way things are. And I mean in the bigger sense of the world, because it's the same old, same old, you know, chucking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Being basically being extremely unpleasant to each other, you know, yeah. in, in the bigger sense and in the the smaller sense. But it seems to me that the 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 opportunity is to is to reveal that that actually doesn't work. Cause all all it does is perpetuate it, you know, with the inner pattern. And um but the the um OKRs is, is something new but what what's coming up as a theme that everybody is saying um who are thinking about this is saying where we really need to focus is on education now you use the word teach i think three times and because that's the other side of education you know and, and we we do need good teaching but this is teaching um what i again on strategically thinking about yourself and your media loved ones your your community and maybe the bigger picture of the planet etc and it's actually thinking about that and it strikes me that okrs could be a good way of thinking about this and actually coming up with some focus um and then actually doing something different because if you keep doing the same thing you're probably going to get the same outcome but i i know um john daw wrote that book which was his more recent one which was basically the sort of here's a solution to solve all the world's big problems sort of stuff. Um, I don't hear that it's had as much traction as measure what mat- matters. And I sense that the part of that is because it's, it people just, you know, it was too complicated. There was too, uh, and and there no doubt there's loads of other things, but that if we could influence um, young minds now that the, I know of a number of programs uh, where people, uh, Um, organisations are sponsoring programmes in schools, for 15-year-olds, 14, 15-year-olds, around business principles, with a belief that business is actually a force for good in society. And there's plenty of reasons that it's not all about greed. It is actually about, you know, employment, all sorts of different things, positives come from it. But then the the next stage, the uh, university education is the the same thing. And I just wondered... um, if you were going to introduce this this thinking about why are we doing this uh, what what's going well what would make it even better and now what about a plan and then execute a plan and be aware of how well the plan execution is going to get you to the outcomes you want let's just call that which you could call okrs by the way but you know it's that's broadly what it was would you call it okrs if you were in the teaching context or and if not what would you call it or um, which, which is it in a silo? Is it across silos? What and what? How would you describe it?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. What would you describe it? I, I think you've got to get more. You need to get the why into what it's called. Mm. And I'm going to use a. It was a quote by W. B. Yeats, Irish poet, writer, philosopher, and he said education was about lighting a fire, not filling a bucket. Mm. And I think that's the same role as a coach in the boardroom. I think, you know, it's about lighting a fire, about change. It's not about filling a task list and making sure how busy you are. So I, I, I think if you were going to rebrand it, there's a couple of things I've thought about that I've, again, that, that lead to confusion with the with OKRs is this. a lot of people think result is the result of completing a task, which is why I think you get a lot of confusion I would call it OKMs if I was going to get anything to be a bit more precise about it, which would be objectives and key metrics because key metrics is the numbers that we care about that indicate that we've created the objectives. But I think broader than that, you've got to think about what, what is it that you're trying to achieve? And I think you know the, the behaviours that each organisation needs in order for its journey to be successfully executed, there's usually a connection to purpose. Mm. So it's... It's purpose-driven execution is really what it's all about. You know, I care, if I care about something, I'll put my back into it and make sure that I do it. And, and if I don't care about it, I'll do the bare minimum in order to make sure I don't get fired. Um, and then if I really, really don't care about it, I'll do absolutely nothing and wait to get fired. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the point is about connecting to purpose. That's the, the reason So I think actually OKRs is just a component part of a broader change of transformation. And I think at the moment, sometimes organizations are reaching into the acronym box and pulling something out, hoping that it'll fix something. And really what I'm more curious about now, and I think where coaching and hopefully what I might start doing more actively, is pushing back and saying, are you actually ready for this? Mm. Because cynically I could sell any amount of hours to tell them and I could I could give them the basics of OKRs, I could do specialist exec coaching, I could regale them with stories of other companies that I've done in and where it's worked and where it hasn't. But is that fair until you've actually benchmarked it and said, you know what, guys, this is the journey. I'm gonna to have to point out the uncomfortable bits. Are you willing to change? It's almost like signing up to a, a mandate, you know, that, they, that we are ready to change. And it has to come from them. You know, this is not about swallowing 130 slides from McKinsey's and hoping it'll change your organisation. This has got to be about we have expressed and seen a change we want to make in ourselves, and we're going to actually put that up there on the walls, and then we'll make it happen, because that level of accountability or recognition that you're going to change is really what's going to drive the things you need. So I think it's it's probably OKRs are an, a very good tool, but I think they're only part of a bigger picture. And I think the bigger picture is a bit broader than just coming up with a good way to measure strategy execution.
0: So, I mean, we have got to bring this to a close. And that's a lovely um, place to begin to land. Uh, I mean, just as a a thought, I mean, you've gone through various iterations, working inside and outside for yourself and um, formed a consultancy and you, you know, you joined and you sold it to another one. uh, What would you say um, would be uh, if if, it? I don't know whether you, how much um, you you mentioned Tim and you mentioned Mark, and I suspect there have been others alongside us. Um, What would you say, just sort of, of all of the things you've done, the different things, and to to get you to here to be able to add this much value? Uh, to, um, you know, an organisation when you come in? Because I know you do, because I've seen you do it. What would you say um, uh, is the core um, qualities of an alongsider that's coming in alongside the senior people to help them focus on the things that matter and, and then actually begin to light a sort of virus of change across the organisation? What would think, you say are those qualities?
1: I think it's the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. You know, mm-hmm. actually generally have the intellectual disconnect where you can actually see things through a different lens. Um, I think that's really powerful and really helpful as well, but it, it's it, it can be tricky. Um, I think the critical friend part, you know, you need to have earned that trust to, um, and I know you do this really beautifully inside, you know, because you, you ask for permission, But once you have that permission, then you've got to make sure that you use it wisely. But you can't just be spoon feeding them what they want to hear if you feel that that's getting in the way of where they want to be. And I think that's the other part of it is perhaps that needs to be improved is there's a blur between coaching and consultancy in the world that I live in. Because often you just people want to know, well, just tell me how to do it. It's when you can read how to do it. There's a thousand books, you know, go and Google it. You know, there's there's a, there is a myriad of information that if you followed it step by step, you could do it. I mean, I see things in guidelines, but it's really about what, what does that feel like to you? And imagine that you did have to do this differently where that number wasn't green, that you actually could present it as red and tell everybody, this is what I've learned in the experience of why we didn't hit this number. How does that feel like? Because if if it feels well, that's unconscionable. We can't do that. Then you've got to. In the, I do genuinely believe that this balancing act between performance and learning, you don't you don't arrive as a fifty five year old chief exec and know everything. You know you've got to be const- constantly learning. So you know maybe the one of the reasons you said that those CEOs bounce and don't get the Im- impact that when they're recruited or headhunted in. Is because they are purely focused on performance mm-hmm. and they're not taking the time to learn. Mm-hmm. You know, without the learning piece, you know, that the lesser known acronym in all of this John Doe stuff is CFRs. Conversation, feedback, recognition. So if you want to get alongside or somebody you can have a great conversation with, you can take feedback from, and in where needed, get the recognition and praise perhaps that you don't get externally. I think those are the Qualities that somebody coaching well is doing in an OKR environment in particular. Yeah, I
0: think that makes that really does make a lot of sense. It really does. Uh Peter, I know we could carry on a long time actually. You've got to get on a plane soon, I know, to go to foreign parts. But I, I just wanted to thank you. Um I know the people listening to this will have got um much from it. Um and um and I hope we have another chance at another time to uh to pick this up again, because there's many threads which we've sort of left uncompletely uh, tailored there. But i
1: love Thanks very much for inviting me. It was a pleasure.
0: Pleasure.